Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It's Monday. I'm Charlie Sykes. And because it's Monday, um, there's Will Salatin. Will, uh, thanks for joining me again. Hey, Charlie. Great to be with you again. Okay, so we could spend the first 20 minutes talking about that UW-Michigan basketball game. Juan Howard taking a whack at one of the uh, the coaches or the assistants of Madison, the whole Greg Gard thing. We could spend, we could spend 20, I have 20 minutes worth of material on that, but that seems inappropriate given the circumstances and our audience. <laughs> because what our audience wants to know is, what do you think, What what is the answer to this question? Are we going to have a summit or are we going to have a war? Go. We will have a war. Not what I wanted, not what you wanted, not what almost anybody wanted, but there's only one person whose wants matter here, and that's Vladimir Putin. And uh, there's, you know, at some point you just have to accept the evidence of your senses, right? The guy is doing everything you would do if you were preparing an invasion. And the American generals have said the same thing, right? This is exactly what we would do. You you don't send medical supplies to the front lines for military exercises. You send them for war. You surround the country on three sides. You shoot off the nuclear, the the, the missiles to warn the Americans not to to intervene. Everything is pointing towards war. So I I keep trying to think through the cost-benefit analysis. Look, I mean, Vladimir Putin has been thinking about this, talking about this for 15 years. I don't think there's any question about it. He wants Ukraine. This would be a big win for him. The downside seems to be rather considerable, unless Vladimir Putin just simply assumes that it is a bluff, that the West is divided and weak in a paper tiger, and that they will go back to their default setting of appeasement. I mean, that has to be what his thinking is, right? Right. It has worked for him, right? Right. Uh, There's a reason why he does this. This is his playbook. And, you know, you throw out the playbook if it doesn't work. But he's run this playbook for several drives, right? And he's gotten touchdowns. And so he's going to keep doing it until something changes. And clearly, Biden and the Europeans are trying to change the defense, trying to deter him. But I think until, until it fails... And it might fail here, and hopefully we can make it fail. He's going to keep running it. So what do you make of uh, the Ukrainian president's speech over the weekend, Zelensky's speech in Munich, where he he talked about appeasement? He actually, which, which I thought was, you know, full of all sorts of uh, historical ironies. You know, you're in Munich, people. Um, and uh, he was really chastising. He was chastising the the uh, the Western Alliance for their record of of appeasement. So what what did you what did you make of that? He says, has our world completely forgotten the mistakes of the 20th century? Where does appeasement policy usually lead us to? He said, how did we end up with in the biggest security crisis since the end of the Cold War? To me, as the president of a country which lost part of its territory, thousands of people, countries surrounded by 150,000 troops on our border, the answer is obvious. The security architecture of Europe and beyond is almost destroyed. It's too late now to talk about fixing it. It's high time for a new one. 15 years ago, it was the Russian Federation that made a statement here challenging the global security order. How did the world respond? Appeasement. So um, this is a guy like up until a week ago was saying, hey, don't hype this up. You know, it's not necessarily imminent, but uh, he didn't hold anything back over the weekend. No, he didn't. And uh, so I have a moral question for you. Am I allowed? Ukraine is about to be invaded. A lot of Ukrainians are about to be killed. Their economy is tanked. A lot of buildings destroyed, et cetera. So we should be helping them. But am I allowed to say that this guy is really annoying me? 
I mean, it was barely, what, a week ago that he was chastising yeah. America and the West for creating panic in his country by saying there was going to be an invasion and the Ukrainians were going about their business stoically. You know, we've been through this before. Nothing's going to happen. And now all of a sudden he's hitting the panic button. He's blaming us. So that just pissed me off, I have to say. Secondly, what he's calling for substantively is he's blaming us for not implementing the sanctions before the invasion. Right, right. I, I do not get this. I do not understand preemptive sanctions. I do not understand the whole point of the preemption is you, Russia, will get the sanctions put on you if you invade, therefore don't invade. If you hit him with the sanctions now, it just makes no sense to me because at that point they're like, what the heck? We might as well invade the sanctions are going to be on us anyway. Oh, oh, okay, the, the, let's play a soundbite here because the Secretary of State was uh, was on uh, on television yesterday morning coming on this. This is uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken on this particular issue of uh, preemptive sanctions. As to laying out in detail what the sanctions will be, two things. First, Russia generally has a pretty good idea uh, of what we're going to do, but we don't want to lay out the specifics in advance because that would allow Russia to uh, try to plan against them. Okay, so that, that's a slightly different thing. It's it, He's not only explaining why you don't preemptively impose the sanctions, he's also saying that we don't actually tell you what the sanctions are going to be. But here's my question, Will, which is that how can the threat of sanctions be preemptive if you won't say what they are? I mean, it's one thing, bad things, big things. It's really going to be bad. You're really not going to like it. Well, like, can you be specific? No, I don't want to be too specific, but you're really not going to like it. That seems to me to be, I don't know, questionable. Okay, so I understand that, but I, I feel like I need to drag in off the street, well, not off the street, off of some think tank, right? Some wonk who understands deterrence better than I do. Is it really true that, as Blinken says, if the target of the sanctions doesn't know exactly what the sanctions will be, that that somehow makes them more fearful of what they might entail? I guess it's possible. I'd like to see some evidence for it. You know, in theory, the point of deterrence is you're very clear about what the consequences will be, just as you're saying, Charlie. And so I, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to see some evidence of that. The other thing that's really worrying me about the Blinken position here is it's not just that you're not telling in advance the Russians what the sanctions will be. You're not telling the Americans right. in advance, right? And if I'm Putin and I'm looking at, say, the United States, and whether they're going to follow through on some serious economic sanctions that are going to bust my economy. I'd like to know whether the Americans are up for that. By the Americans, I mean the American public. Let's say there's going to be 10% inflation in this country if we really crack down on Russian oil and gas. There's going to be skyrocketing gas prices, energy prices, right? You would want to tell Americans that you, Joe Biden, should be telling Americans that now, so that you are showing Biden, right. you are showing Putin, you are preparing your country for what it will be an arduous period of economic suffering. Okay, I'm not this wonk, but I am thinking that if you want to deter someone like Vladimir Putin, you have to be credible and you have to be specific. And we, going back to, you know, we're talking about the cost-benefit analysis. He he thinks that the United States and, and the West will choke. He he thinks that he will get away with all this. So in order to deter him, you have to convince, no, this time is different. We are really serious and um, you're really not going to like it. We haven't done that. And and that, that, that worries me. Look, I, I'm not trying to rip on them. I actually think they've handled it pretty effectively. But this does seem to be a huge gap here, particularly because I Again, you know, this is a fool's errand trying to get inside Vladimir Putin's head necessarily. But 
you know, what I wrote about in my newsletter today was the the sort of the right wing shills in the United States. And normally you sort of brush that off and like that's not really, really that important. But in this case, I think that they are highly consequential because Putin is fully aware that he faces a divided United States and that these influential voices on the right have been channeling his own propaganda. And it's reasonable for him to think that some of those, you know, conservative right-wing voices like, you know, Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the you know, other folks um, are, in fact, do represent the sentiment of MAGA world because they, you know, they come from the former guy's uh, inner circle. And so if you're Vladimir Putin, you're going, OK, the United States is weak. It's divided. I've gotten away with this in the past. And I'm hearing from Trump's circle all sorts of noises that are interesting to me, especially if he actually returns to the presidency. Uh, so all of that, I think, it has got to embolden him. And, and I'm, I'm really and I, I want to sort of bounce this off you because I know it's dangerous to criticize, um, you know, to go too hard on, on any dissenters, anyone who is, you know, critical of, of American foreign policy. They're accused of being disloyal. This strikes me as a different circumstance. Given Trump's relationship with Vladimir Putin, given Trump's appeasement of him, given the fact that Trump might come back to the presidency, all of these voices in the United States suggesting to Vladimir Putin that, hey, if you do this, um, we're not going to be too upset about it and we might even have your back. Yeah. And uh, well, that makes me wonder, uh, you know, I kind of want to research these people and see who in what other contexts have they expressed this kind of isolationism? Is it a is it pervasive? Is it selective to Russia? If so, why uh, are they taking that lead from Trump himself, who was, you know, who is considerably uh, more uh, more of a I don't know how to say pacifist uh, in the context of Russia than he is anywhere else? Um, does, or does, you know, does it really matter in the sense that if they are advocating isolationism, if the whole course of America first movement is isolationism, does Putin just say, well, that just suits me fine, whether it's specific to me or not. But I also am thinking that I need to look at some polling on this because mm. you, you know, if I were the Russians, this would be a huge factor. You know, I have to say, okay, I, I am a liberal on military matters to this extent. I would like us to find non-military ways of punishing the Russians or punishing the Chinese, given that we have so much economic power. I believe the stat that has been quoted by Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, is that the West has 50% of the world's GDP, right? And the Russians and the Chinese together have 20%. That is enormous leverage, which if we can find ways to marshal it and to apply it, uh, consequentially to deter Russian aggression or Chinese aggression, that would save so many lives. It would save so much destruction. It would be painful the first time we do it, but if we can make it an effective deterrent so that we don't have to be doing sanctions all the time, but the threat of sanctions is effective, that would be a much better way of preserving a world order that at least preserves sovereignty, if not democracy. No, and I think adding together China and, and Russia, I think in some ways kind of distorts the picture, though, because Russia is so much smaller. I mean, China is this massive economic power that at some point in the next century will probably overtake or certainly has, has the potential to overtake the United States in terms of GDP. Russia is basically like a gas station with nukes. So, you know, we are able to do it. I guess part of the problem is that any sanctions that we, economic sanctions that we impose on Russia will also inflict pain on ourselves. You mentioned, you know, 
if, if, if you're in the Biden administration and you're thinking this through, you think, okay, um, what will the consequences be? Will this cause a massive spike in gas prices, which will be blamed on, you know, him um, as opposed to Vladimir Putin? So, I mean, there's there are considerable downsides here. There's no question about it. Um, and uh, we'll we will see over the next, uh, you know, 48 hours whether this is real. This whole talk about the summit. So I, I, my first question was war or summit. And you said war. So why not a summit? I mean, last night we all went to bed. Um, you know, that the president of France had somehow brokered this deal and the White House had said that they were accepting it in principle, by which they meant, yes, we'll have a summit as long as you don't actually, you know, start killing Ukrainians. Why do you think that summit's not going to take place? Well, it's not going to take place because for it to take yeah. place, the Russians yeah. have to not invade. That was the explicit condition. And all the signs are the Russians intend yeah, to invade. Right. And I'm not sure what, what exactly it is that would be agreed to at this summit that would appease Putin. I mean, he's been offered lots of, you know, security guarantees or we're going to work out a different arrangement or where we put our troops or where we put our missiles. And none of that has has made an impact. At some point, you have to accept that the person you're dealing with is not right. interested in a conversation. It did strike me that a summit would be very dangerous for Joe Biden because you, the, the the question is, what can you do to appease someone who's already decided to go to war? That's really the only question, right? Um, right. Or, or, or that, that you tell him something that will deter him, you know, that you will be cut off from the world, you know, banking system. But they've already signaled they're not going to do that. So I don't know what else there is. You know, we're going to put nuclear weapons back in Ukraine. Uh, don't think so. No, I don't think so. And, and of course, if you do make some serious concession in a summit at this point, because the guy has Ukraine surrounded on three sides and is already essentially beginning the attack, you're telling him, do it again, and we'll give you another couple of problems. Well, see, that's that's it. That's that is the problem. Okay, so on the question of of appeasing um, the world's most deplorable folks, um, what did you make of the story over the weekend that the Trump Organization is in talks with the Saudis to host their golf tournament? Of course, that's become really controversial with Phil Mickelson saying, "Well, yes, yeah, they behead gays, but this is a great opportunity for us." Uh, you know, once again, we're finding out that. Sports and corporate sponsors will talk a good game, except if it affects their bottom line. So the Saudis want to get into the golf business. Uh, you have some people in the PGA willing to go along. And there's Trump, who's really been, you know, sucking up to the Saudis for some time now. Your thoughts? Yeah. Okay. So I have so much to say about this. This is, <laughs> sorry, this is yeah. one of my favorite, the least favorite topics, I should say. Yeah. So the, it, one of the things, part of what we're watching happened to the Republican Party is what happens when you evacuate all the moral principles from your party? What, what's left, right? And the answer in some cases is money. In the, in the context of Donald Trump, it is certainly money. Everything is about money. He never stopped being a businessman. So while he was president, he reduced American foreign policy to money. And they, one of the clearest examples of that is uh, May 2017, shortly after he becomes president, he goes to Riyadh, he goes to Saudi Arabia, and he gives a speech there. He elevates the Saudis. He then holds unbelievably grotesque ceremony there in the Saudi capital, at which executives of American companies parade before the Saudi leader and are presented with these bound copies of contracts for a Saudi purchases. Some of the he says, military purchases, to, you know, non military but it's all about like hundreds of billions of dollars that the Saudis are going to pay to American companies for these contracts. And of course, then there's all sorts of human rights abuses. There's the murder of Jamal Khashoggi overseen by Mohammed bin Salman. 
And Trump is excusing all of the human rights violations while he's collecting the money. All the time this is happening, I'm thinking to myself, isn't it gross that this guy has reduced American foreign policy to money? But at least at that point, it was other people's money, right? It was like jobs for Americans at these companies, yada, yada. Now, he, the guy is out of power, and it's all about his money, right? Having defended this murderer, he is now cashing in. The Trump organization itself, and Donald Trump personally, has, is talking to the organization, putting together these, these Saudi golf tournaments, these Saudi-backed golf tournaments, um, and it's going to be straight into Donald Trump's and the Trump organization's coffers. It's his golf courses. So it was like being president was just a vehicle for his for his financial gain the whole time. And the interesting thing about that is there's nothing surprising about that. You know, he told us who he was from the very, very beginning, and his conduct has been absolutely consistent. And again, I've made this point, and I apologize for making it again, but all of Trump's quote-unquote scandals have taken place in broad daylight. He says what he's going to do. He does it. It takes place in real time. There are really no mysteries here about this, are there? No, he said what he was going to do. You know, people loved him, right? He was, right. He's he's not a politician, I alone. Yeah. right? Yeah. He, he's a businessman. They, it's, we need a businessman. Well, guess what? Sometimes a businessman was a businessman the whole time he was president, is still a businessman, and treated your country and its foreign policy as a vehicle for his own profit. Yeah, but speaking of Trump, and there's a lot of wish casting out there from folks who say, you know, Trump's grip on the Republican Party is is weakening. And and there are, you know, there are polls that would suggest that, that it's happening. But let's just uh, play this little soundbite from uh, Senator Tim Scott, uh, African-American United States senator from South Carolina, who's been rumored to be a possible vice presidential pick. I'm very skeptical about that. But he's on with uh, the the Fox News host, formerly known as the Money Honey, and they're talking about Donald Trump. And this is what Senator Tim Scott said yesterday. Well, I think everybody wants to be on, on, on President Trump's bandwagon, no, without any question. One of the things I've said to the president is that he gets to decide the future of our party and our country because he is still the loudest voice. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> I'm so, I just... Fuck. I just, uh, okay, well... You know, I mean, I, I guess, you know, w- none of us should be surprised at this point. I mean, it's like, it's like, Charlie, okay, it's six years of watching Invasion of the Body Snatchers, of people tugging their forelocks. But, you know, there was, we all have to be on his bandwagon, no matter how demented he is, no matter how many conspiracy theories, no matter how incredibly reckless and corrupt he is. There you have Tim Scott who, you know, could be one of the future leaders of the Republican Party saying, absolutely, we are on the bandwagon and he gets to decide. I mean, could could there be any more aggressive toe-licking imaginable than a, <laughs> than a United States fucking senator? Basically, well, yes, he, because he's the loudest voice, because what, you know? Right. Uh, that, oh my God, that line, yeah. he gets to decide. No. He didn't just say the future of our party, the I future know. of our country. A guy who is nominally out of power. Can I just point out, it's just a year since Republicans were acquitting Donald Trump in his second impeachment on the grounds that, hey, he's out of power. He's left. He's a private citizen. It would be wrong to persecute him. It turns out, though, a year later, they he was never out of power, right? He's still in power because all the people who are nominally in power, these senators, are still mentally beholden to him, right? They're, they're treating him as though he is the de facto leader of their party and will be the, the leader of the country 
So the yeah, I I can't, I just can't. And as he increasingly aligns himself with the most insane elements of his party, I, I know you've probably read about some of the things going on here in my home state of Wisconsin, which is incredible to watch, knowing all the characters here. And and it is the by now familiar story, although pushed to the limit where you had the Republican leaders who were trying to appease Donald Trump, Robin Voss went so far as to appoint this uh, rather deplorable ex-judge to run this completely bogus investigation of the 2020 election. They've issued, you know, dozens of subpoenas. They're in the paper this weekend, um, assembly Republican leaders saying that they want to jail local election officials. I mean, this is how far they are. And yet they haven't gone far enough. Because now the fringe, represented by a guy that's actually running for governor, is demanding that they actually rescind the electoral vote counts. And the fringe is being encouraged by Donald Trump himself, who, according to Rolling Stone, is on the phone all the time with this guy named Timothy Rantham, who is running for governor in Wisconsin. Um, Mike Lindell shows up at Rantham's uh, announcement for governor. Mike Flynn calls in. Uh, this is the this is like the the beating heart of the MAGA you know crazies. But the weird thing is that so you have the the MAGA crazies saying we should actually rescind the electoral votes, and the mainstream's position is no, we should just jail election officials. <laughs> it's like you know we're Wisconsin Republicans are poised to win this year, except if they completely blow themselves up, which they apparently are. I mean, they are shoving sticks of dynamite up every orifice of their bodies right now. I mean, it's like, boom, just splatter everywhere. And yet, so it's it's Trump who has aligned himself with the Lindell Flynn completely crazy element. So there's a fight between Nancy Mace, who's very MAGA, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And Trump has you know, aligned himself with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And you would think that at some point people would go, okay, you know what? Guy had a good run. Let's move on. He's gotten a little bit crazy. And there you have Tim Scott. Oh, we all want to be on the bandwagon. Okay. So first of all, I, I have to say as, an, as blow my brains out, watching, <laughs> watching your home state is like watching a third world country. Like I am, Jesus. I am the, the, the thing that has that really hit me was the threat to jail election officials, yeah. which so let me back up because I need These to understand. These are the normal mainstream guys too. That's, <laughs> That's what. It, so this threat, Charlie, if as I understand it, is not coming from somebody running for office. This is coming from people who are actually running an investigation under the yes, under yes, the so totally bogus investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's a bogus investigation, but it has a, the official imprimatur on it, right? It is. Right. It is. They have the people sure. in power are sponsoring this investigation that is yes. calling for the jailing. So yes. that is a whole other level of crazy to me. Yes. Yes. Unless I'm misunderstanding it. Yeah. We keep moving the window of crazy. So if I wanted to say, you know, one of the big moves by the really fringe crazies, like fire Robin Voss, the assembly speaker. Robin Voss is a rhino. Robin Voss is very conservative. He's a rhino. He's kind of the bag man and everything. But you can't defend him from the crazies because he's embraced the crazies. So it's like, what what are you doing here, man? Yeah. I, well, I can't sort out the different kinds of crazy especially you, you know them, it, it gets, it, 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 it gets worse. Speaking of crazy, CPAC will be meeting down in uh, Florida this week. And of course, look, CPAC's got a long history of being the, you know, Star Wars bar scene of the conservative movement. Under the leadership of Matt Schlapp, it's become completely Trumpy. Did you see their latest speaker that they announced? Tulsi Gabbard. Okay. 
See, every deplorable, every, I mean, it's, you can really trace the devolution of the conservative movement by looking at the speakers, you know, the kinds of, you know, bizarre conspiracy theorists, you know, COVID denialists, you know, people who spread all kinds of, you know, misinformation, et cetera. But Tulsi Gabbard, I think, has a lifetime conservative voting record of 7%. But since she's gone MAGA and willing to do what she's doing, she is going to be a speaker at the conservative uh, political action conference, which of course, if you even mentioned Liz Cheney's name, of course would be met with massive boos. Matt Schlapp over the weekend though, did say something kind of interesting, interesting clarification. Let's play Matt Schlapp from this weekend. The conservative movement, which I don't use, I call it the American movement, because that's all it is. We're no longer conservatives, we're Americans who love our founding. Hmm, we're no longer conservatives. I appreciate the acknowledgement. Yeah, it's that's that's refreshingly candid. You know, just to step back the the thirty thousand foot angle here, the, the this is what is really happening in our country, which is the conservative party, the party that is supposed to represent conservatism, no longer does. Right? They've there, and it's not as though those principles, those conservative principles, went away. A lot of those were, by the way, were in the American founding. If you want to be serious about the American founding, the uh, separation of powers, the construction of government so that no one person has too much power. Oh, say the vice president overturning an election by himself. So. Those are principles of the American founding, but the conservative party evacuated those. And so it's left to sort of figure out what it wants to stand for. And because it's run by people who want to make money, it becomes sort of a a grift operation. And that's kind of what CPAC has become. It's certainly what Matt Schlapp has become. And so, you know, now they're just making it up as they go along. I mean, what does Matt Schlapp now say is, you know, this, these are these American values that are not conservative. Yeah, the American values. Apparently, well, whatever whatever Trump has to say, I'm not going to even get into the the fact that the folks from places like the Claremont Institute are now really aggressively embracing the Great Replacement theory and things like that. So, I think maybe it's the speed with which they're moving and the lack of any sort of pushback or resistance. I mean, you would think that someone like Tim Scott would say, okay, we can be conservatives without doing, you know, X, Y, and Z, but he's not willing to do that. And thereby mm-hmm. hangs a rather, you know, tragic tale. Can we, sorry, can we hang yeah. on to the replacement theory stuff for just sure. a second oh, here? Okay, yeah, no. Uh, okay, so this is one of the things that you're left with if you have no values anymore, right? Like if you don't actually stand for any of the universal values that America was founded for, if you've abandoned the ideas of democracy, the rule of law, separation of powers, the limited government, whatever, you can end up with an ethnic definition of America. And that's that's one of the residues of what's happened to the Republican Party, right? They've become Tucker Carlson. They've become great replacement. They've become, it's all about speaking a particular language. It's about having a particular skin color or coming from a particular continent. The racism, and I don't, I really don't want to overhype racism, right? It's used too much today, but it is one of the things you are left with if you don't have a better understanding of what America is. And yet they're going to win this year. And in part, it's because Democrats just, I mean, they're globally awful at politics. It's not just messaging as well. It's that, that they don't seem to understand why they're losing the culture wars, why they're on the wrong side of the education wars, what happened in San Francisco to them, what's going on with crime and the border. I don't want to get into it too much, but they're going to get just destroyed on this transgender athlete issue. I just don't DM me about this. OK, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I will write about this and I will devote a show to it. They will get absolutely trashed on all of this. So you and I haven't spoken really since uh, since the San Francisco vote. There's a lot of, I think, denialism 
about what happened. I mean, yes, there's, you know, clearly some local, local issues that had to do. And yes, it was more about performance than being performative, but I'm sorry, but there are real warning signs there for Democrats around the country that certain kinds of extremely progressive politics are absolutely politically toxic. And they're not done so in, in San Francisco. I think they're going to, they certainly, there's at least a 50-50 chance that they will uh, end up recalling the uh, Uber woke district attorney there as well. So what do you think of San Francisco? Where do you come down on this debate? Well, I do think there are warnings. I, I don't think that the, the fact that the San Francisco recall happened is going gonna, is gonna to no, play no. in the 2022 right. elections. Not, not at all. But, no. but I'm with you on the warning signs. And the warning signs, to me, come back to some of these basic intuitions, like, people being out of touch, first of all, just not doing your job, right? If you, what happened to the San Francisco school board is not just that they went around renaming a bunch of schools that didn't need to be renamed, but they just didn't do the basic job of getting kids back in in person schooling. And if you don't do the job, that creates this vacuum so that Republicans could point out, and heck, in San Francisco, it wasn't even Republicans, right? This is a very liberal electorate, right? But people don't like you doing woke stuff if it looks like the woke stuff is your substitute for doing the job, right? The job was to, like, run the schools. So this is a favorite Republican talking point. And if if, if this hurt the liberals in San Francisco with a liberal electorate, you can just imagine how it plays in 2022 in states with, like, serious Republican votership. So that's the, my first thought. And and in general, there are some really, really basic moral values that people have, like parental influence in schooling, like controlling crime, law and order. And Democrats have to speak to these intuitions and these feelings, or Republicans will do it for them and not in a nice way. And not in a nice way. Um, I, I think it particularly warning signs for Asian American voters as well, because one of the big issues there was the admissions policies to certain elite schools and the way they're handling all of this, you know, going to a lottery. And I think a lot of the rhetoric of racial equity that you're seeing in places like New York and San Francisco may be local issues, but they play across the country. I mean, this is the thing that people need to understand, that all of these issues are going to be brought up and will influence voters who've never even heard of this. Now, let me tell you like a DM I just got like five minutes ago. Okay. So to give you a sense of stuff that's going on. Okay. So guy, and I don't know, I don't know the guy. He's one of my followers on Twitter. And he goes, news from Seattle, Charlie, the King County Board of Health voted to repeal a mandatory bike helmet law. Okay. Because can you guess why? Can you guess? No, that's not, that's a trick question. Uh, because the fines were going disproportionately to people of color. I'm a typical Seattle Democrat who lived two blocks from Governor Inslee on Bainbridge Island. This is a woke disaster and is pissing off a lot of my Dem friends. You know, just stuff like this. Yeah. Well, and can I broaden this a little bit? This sure. conversation about minorities and uh, people of color and what this right now we are going, America is going through a reckoning about race, but it's specifically a reckoning about black and white, right? It's about George Floyd. It's about policing. It's about disparities in schooling and whatnot. But diversity is a lot bigger than black and white. And in San Francisco, you have, I don't even know what the percentage is, a significant Asian American population. Nationally, Asian Americans are like six or 7% of the population. I forget the exact number, but it's in that ballpark. That's like 
about half of African-Americans. But Asian-Americans have been excluded from a lot of these conversations about diversity. Asian-Americans in San Francisco did not like the change to a lottery system from a test and grade uh, right. system for getting into the elite high school there. And you, you, know, you cannot keep going on talking about minorities and ignoring such a large minority or implementing policies that hurt that minority and hurt them unfairly because the community was sort of, look, we're going to work hard. We're going to try to get good grades. We're going to try to do well on the test and get into the school. And then if you tell them it doesn't matter, that's not just politically harmful. That's wrong. Well, yeah, I wasn't going to get into this, but in my newsletter yesterday, I quoted something from uh, Matt Iglesias, who's really been all over this. And, and he talked about this view that the San Francisco school board recall was about competence, not, uh, not ideology. But what he points out is that the tissue linking a lot of these debates is an ideological objection to assessment that's popular in education schools. And it's often framed as anti-racist. So, so stuff that, you know, well, it's just about competence. It's just about getting stuff done. Well, you no, know, some of this stuff has to do with the really heavy hand of ideology. And then he, let me just read you a quote from his newsletter. And he talks about, you know, Ibram X. Kendi, who is like the big, the actual big CRT guy. No denial. This is the guy. Kendi argues that standardized tests have become the most effective racist weapon ever devised to objectively degrade black and brown minds. Uh, and this was an interview highly touted by the National Education Association. He believes in this strongly and has said it repeatedly. He also espouses the related notion that the academic achievement gap is a racist idea. And then Iglesias says, this completely inverts the logic of the Clinton-Bush-Obama era of education policy, which took African-American students' relatively weak academic performance to be a problem to be solved by improving school performance. Kendi's argument is that if any study, any metric shows black kids are doing worse than white ones, that means the metric is racist by definition. This line of thinking has gotten a lot of play over the past year, especially in controversies about who should get into various magnet schools. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. But you can see how this plays out in places like Virginia. You can see how this plays out in the suburbs and also in just education circles, which is that not only are we not going to try to improve the inner city schools and try to find out reform, it's like anybody that points out that there is a problem, that that itself is a sign of racism. I mean, this is a real problem. And I think it's a, this is a problem for traditional, say, Clinton-Obama-type liberals even more so than conservatives. Yeah, and I would put myself in that category. Yeah. So there's a couple of things going on here. Um, one is, in making that move that Kendi's talking about, you are betraying, rejecting some very fundamental values, pervasive values, the value of merit, the value of work, the value of performance, right? These things, these things matter. There, you know, I don't, I, I don't know, even know how to have an argument with him about that. It's just a fact of life. You tell your kids, you work hard, you know, do, do the job well, take pride in it. And if you don't do well, do better, right? You, you change your performance, not the standard, right? The standard is there and you meet it. And again, if Democrats don't speak to that, they will get wiped out and wiped out for a good reason, because this is basic to human society. But the second thing that's going on is even more worrisome, which is a rejection of objective measurement, right? This is a road to madness, right? If you start throwing out the metrics because you don't like what the metrics are telling you, 
this is what happened in some ways to the Republican Party, right? Like we're, we're going to reject facts. We're going to reject evidence about vaccines. We're going to make up our own stuff about what happened in the election. And you just lose touch with the only thing that can keep you sane, which is consulting evidence. So, for example, you say you're doing this in the name of people of color, in the name of, say, black kids. What if the black schools are performing terribly, the schools in the black neighborhoods? What if like they're just doing a crappy job of educating those kids and putting those kids behind for the rest of their lives? You have to have the metric to tell you that. You can't just say, well, because this makes those schools look worse, we're not going to pay attention to it. That is a recipe for putting those kids in a hole the rest of their lives. It is, and we're going to have to confront that at some point. Okay, let, let's shift to one last issue, the the ongoing mask vaccine debate, What where we're at with the pandemic. We're still like seeing 2,000 deaths a day. Am I right about that? I mean, it's- Yeah, we're over, th- We're well, we're around that ballpark. We, we've been over it the last couple of days. Well, but America's also over, um, it, apparently, <laughs> this 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 pandemic, I have to say. I mean, it just seems like it, the, the assumption is that we're, we're done with it. You know, people are taking the masks off. One guy who I think, and I'm going to get your take on this, one governor who I think has sort of hit a sweet spot on this, and I've been sort of looking around for, is anybody getting this right, is the Democratic governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, is backing off the mask mandates while emphasizing vaccinations. And let's play a soundbite from uh, Colorado Governor Jared Polis. Uh, What's remarkable is when you look across the data set for United States, Those who are triple vaccinated have a 96 percent lower death rate, Mm -hmm. double vaccinated, 85 percent lower uh, death rate. And by the way, let that be a reminder to viewers. If you're putting off that third dose, please go go get it. It makes a big difference. Um, And and it's just such a different place than it was to begin with. Um, Frankly, uh, at this level, um, the virus is still something you want to avoid. Uh, We, of course, and I support masks as a matter of personal responsibility. People who uh, choose to wear them indoors around others are adding that layer of protection. But the most important thing right now is to get people triple triple dosed and and move on with our lives. Okay, what do you think? Well, I kind of like where he's going with this. Um, And I I, I like it. Uh, You know, there's an you can have a separate argument about how to get people vaccinated. Do you need a vaccine mandate? But what he's talking about is getting rid of some of the other stuff like the masks and the mask mandates. I mean, he's he's not anti-mask. He's pro-mask if you need to protect somebody in your family. But what he's saying is the vaccine, if you are vaccinated, you are protected. You are so much better protected than, than otherwise. And that that's really enough, right? And you don't need to fuss so much about whether somebody else is wearing a mask or not. You can also wear a mask. Uh, if you wear a mask, that will also inhibit to some degree the transmission to you. But even if the virus gets into you, your immune system, having been vaccinated, will be will protect you and will make it less likely that you will transmit to others. So we're getting toward that sort of libertarian end where people can sort of draw their own degree of protection and choose whether or not to wear masks. He does leave open the question of whether the vaccines themselves should be mandated. He opposes that. But I don't know. Where where do you come down on that? I've been in favor of it. I unapologetically look, I think this is a, a public health issue. We've had mandatory vaccines and immunizations for kids in schools for many, many, many years. I was looking at a chart over the weekend of what happened with polio. Uh, you can just see the you know the line spikes and then it just disappears. Why did it disappear? You know, because of vaccination. So I don't have a problem with that. I do wish that the the federal government was clearer about it. And I think their their handling of this has been uh, less than optimal on this. But I don't have a problem with the with the vaccine mandates. I, I, I guess I wish the 
the the messages were clearer and more consistent though. Yeah, well, the CDC has a fundamental problem, which is that although this is, they're supposed to speak for the whole country and you just can't do that here. You can't do it because the virus is hitting different communities, different states, different regions at different rates, at different times, right? The wave comes through. And so CDC is trying, is trying to implement guidance when really what you need is you need to look at what is the transmission rate? What is the test positivity rate in your community? And how are the hospitals doing? Are they able to take patients for other reasons? And those very local factors should actually be guiding your right. decisions. Yeah. And it's just, I think the CDC is in an impossible position for that reason. I think that, that's, that, that's good. Now, uh, the really bad news, <laughs> unfortunately, I hate to keep coming back to uh, this troll, but Candace Owens is one of those people that, that in a rational world, nobody would be paying attention to. I mean, no one would hear of her. Nobody would be listening to her. But Ben Shapiro, who at one time was considered to be you know, one of the serious guys out there, I have a really embarrassing quote in the New York Times about him which is one of like my worst takes ever where I talked about, you know, the Ben Shapiro is like, he's not like these other guys. Like, Bullshit. <laughs> and his stuff just dominates Facebook. I mean, we're talking about tens of millions of people that watch this stuff. So people say, why are you, you know, giving it higher profile? Uh, trust me, I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm just telling you what's going on. Well, Candace Owens, who, and he hires her, you know, despite the fact that she's a lunatic and a conspiracy theorist and dangerous. So she tweeted out, I don't know if you've seen this, in two weeks, I'm dropping a free video series, 11 episodes, to go through the history of every single childhood vaccination on the schedule. It's taken me almost two years to research. I want parents to truly have informed consent available exclusively on Parlor app. It's called A Shot in the Dark. So what's happening is that they've moved on from the COVID vaccine to all vaccines. They've gone complete anti-vaxxer. And Ben Shapiro, you know, the you know retromingian hack that he's become, has basically provided a voice for this anti-vax movement, this reckless uh, anti-vax movement that I think is going to have uh, long-term negative implications for the health of children and, frankly, the rest of us, and, and not just on COVID. I mean, if you're talking about every single childhood vaccine, or you're talking about all this other stuff as well. Yeah. So this shit's about to get worse. Sorry. Well, this is reminding me of, so when, when the vaccine mandates were first announced, Scott Gottlieb, who's the former FDA commissioner, one of the people I respect most on this topic, smart guy. said, yeah, he's a smart guy. And he was very leery of this. And his, his argument was, this is going to harden resistance. And secondly, it's going to spread to other vaccines. It's going to, it's going to hard, it's going to make people turn against. So I'm a little worried that his prediction will come true. Yeah. I don't want to blame the, the, the mandators for this because I think yeah. the reasons for them, the, the mandators were trying to save lives and it still makes sense to me. But it does seem to be true that the Candace Owenses of the world are, you know, parlaying this into a general anti-vax position. And the only thing that's going to stop this, it seems to me, is at what point are people, so many people dying because of the terrible advice of, of the Owenses of the world? Um, that and the Ron Johnsons, for that matter, people in elected office, that uh, that it becomes a, a potent issue in elections, and people say, you know, I, we don't like Joe Biden, but with these people, these Republicans are literally killing people with their vaccine nonsense, and it doesn't seem like it's going to happen this year. No, but see, that's the thing. It's here's the spoiler alert on this: we're going to hit a million people who have died. And if we, you and I were having this conversation a couple of years ago. And say, well, okay, well, what if a million Americans died, you know, because of this misinformation and this, uh, you know, demagoguery from the Trump administration? If a million people die, well, that would be the turning point. 
Nothing, right? Yeah, and even the even the stunning, stunning statistical differentials between sort of Republicans and Democrats based on vaccination status in, in terms of dying of COVID do not seem to have made a dent. You know, you would think at some point self-interest would kick in. It just hasn't. Yeah, or self-preservation. <laughs> I mean, that's yes. basic things. All right, so what else are you thinking about? What should we be watching? Uh, the, I don't know. Like, I, the, the, you know, this, this other thing that came up this week, I don't know if you've talked about it, the, uh, the higher percentage of people identifying as LGBTQ than, uh, than I forget, what was, what was the last time they took this, 10 years ago, a year ago? I, I don't know what to make of that, huh? Yeah, there it's uh, it's like so. There's like all this excitement around this. Is there something to, you know? And and of course, on the right, it creates a panic, right? Oh my God, they're turning America's children gay, you know. And it, first of all, it's it's very overhyped. This is based on some Gallup data, and what's actually happening is more people are identifying as bisexual. Like, if you are ninety five percent straight, do you call yourself straight, or do you call yourself bi? And among some young people, it's kind of hip to call yourself bi. But nature, Charlie, has not gone away, right? Nature is oh. really interested in procreation. So it's not like heterosexuality is somehow going to get wiped away by some cultural trend. And so when the question is asked in the future, what was the exact moment that Will Salatin was canceled? It was... No. <laughs> <laughs> February 21st. No, I, I actually am going to write about the this uh, the transgender athlete issue involving the the swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. And all these records. Maybe we'll talk about it next week. I think I know exactly how this is going to play out. I, I think I'm going to do it in a five-act play. You know, we've seen act one, we've seen act two. Let me tell you what act three is going to be like. <laughs> Wait, does the play include your cancellation? No, that will come afterwards because... If you want to be canceled, this is the one issue to write about and talk about. It really I have is. to. Can I ask, make a confession? Ask, ask J.K. Rowling. Okay, so I may, I'll make a confession. Please. I looked at that story, the yeah. Leah Thomas story, yeah. thought about writing about it, and decided yep. it wasn't worth the headache. And by headache, See, I mean the cancellation. I, okay, that, I, I appreciate you admitting that because I'm kind of wrestling with that. And this is one of the whole points of doing what we do is, right, we actually say what we think. We provide our insight into it. And yet this is an issue where I think that people engage in self-censorship. And it's not irrational because, you know, the flying monkeys are going to be released. And yet, uh, I okay, I, I, as of right now, I'm going to write it, but now you're making me nervous. Can, can if, I just if, speak up for that? If Will so Salatin, I, a guy, a guy <laughs> who was who wrote for Slate magazine and had Slate takes for twenty five years, <laughs> yeah, if you're the, nervous about it, then whoa. Well, it's to, okay. To be fair, it's like the calculation. There, there is a calculation about whether it's worth it, and the worth it includes <laughs> the fact that we are in you know a crisis of democracy, and the crisis is not being caused by transgender swimmers, right? So it feels like really small potatoes. It's just so I understand the don't amplify that story, yeah. but the fact, of course, is that whether someone should be able to compete as a woman should depend on objective criteria, right? And that's not necessarily how you identify. It's some physical facts that, so for example, allow you to break a whole bunch of records because you're competing against people who were born as women. Well, I think at some point you're going to have to ask who's going to stand up for women and women in sports. So, okay, I, okay I'm going to be, here we go. But I will write about, and I will write it as a, like a four-act play or a five-act play. There's no rule about that, right? It can be a four-act play. 
You can make up as many acts as you want. It can be a one act play. It can be a three act play. You can, you know, there's, there's, there's no actual classical rule there that we have. To no, follow. except that if you're writing a play, you get to decide how many acts. And if you step into this, Charlie, you're not going to get to choose how many acts there are. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Will Salatin, thank you so much for joining me this morning. We'll thank you, again. Charlie. We'll do this again next Monday. And I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow and do this all over again.